Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? A verdict? Welcome to the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Your weekly deep dive into personal injury and wrongful death law. Touching on everything torts, legal tech, trying cases to verdict, and the outlandish stories that come with them. And now, here are your hosts, John Fisher and Jordan Reed David. All right, welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the, another episode of the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. Um, we got Jordan back in the studio this week. I know he had a little bit of a, a hiatus last week, so we're happy to have him back. But we also have a very special guest uh, joining the podcast, a, a dear friend of mine, a great trial lawyer, a uh, younger trial lawyer like myself and, and Jordan, uh, Mr. Zach Bodenheimer. Um, he's in the studio with us. A little bit of background of Zach. He, um, he's on his own now. He's got a member of the Flanagan and Bodenheimer uh, personal injury and wrongful death law firm practicing personal injury trial lawyer um, who has had exceptional results, exceptional success, and he's an exceptional advocate for his clients. Um, He's someone that has taught me a lot. He's a former, he was a state attorney before he got into the civil realm, and after he completed his commitment to them, he jumped into personal injury, and he has really taken off. Uh, It's someone that I've learned an incredible amount from in, in trial you know, and he's in in fairness to everyone, he's a good, really good friend of mine. He's the godfather to my firstborn son, and so I'm very happy to have him on um, here on the podcast. So welcome, Zach. Thanks, thanks, guys. I'm happy to be here, and thank you for the introduction. You, you know, so it's interesting because you know we're all like younger trial lawyers. Uh, we we talk a lot about you know you know Jordan and I about when we started our practice. And it's kind of a funny story and I, and I, about how without me, <clears throat> me and Jordan would not be partners if it really wasn't for Zach, right? And it's a true story. Um, Zach was, he, he was working at a, at a uh, firm in, in here in South Florida. Um, he had met Jordan. They actually worked in the same building. And I was getting criminal cases sometimes, and I would send them to Zach because he had his personal experience doing that. And then he would in turn send them to Jordan and then because Jordan was doing mostly criminal when he had his own practice. And then Jordan in turn would send PI cases back to Zach. So we met uh, at an event for his former firm and, you know, we kind of clicked and kind of basically cut out the middleman. We cut out Zach and then, uh, you know, we hit the ground running. So we we indirectly have to thank Zach for being an instrumental uh, part of Fisher David here. So. Um, I'll take credit yeah. for creating Fisher David. <laughs> you can. So listen, Zach, you're a, you're a different perspective. You're a younger lawyer um, like us, and you've done exceptional things. You you jumped out um, from a like an associate, you know, and a partner role at a, at a law firm to begin your own practice, and then you you ultimately partnered with Michael Flanagan, who we another friend of ours who went to law school together. So. Kind of walk me through, um, you know, that decision to leave, you know, start your own practice. You know, was it, you know, did you have aspirations to always do that? What were some of the concerns, fears, things that you had, you know, moving forward? So <clears throat> it's a good question. Um, I was with a uh, very good, very reputable firm in South Florida um, and got a ton of experience there, tried a lot of cases there. Um, got to do a lot of depots, really probably got more experience there in five years than probably a lot of attorneys get in a decade, you know, just because we were so busy. Um, we were doing depositions, mediations, trials, you know, almost every day of the week. Sometimes I'd look at my calendar and it didn't seem like I'd be able to get it all done. But, um, that really gave me the tools that made me feel comfortable enough to start on my own. And from there, um, you know, it just took, uh, uh, took some courage to make the decision that, you know, this is, is something I wanted to do. And, you know, it, uh, it was scary when I went out on my own because three months after I left COVID hit. And so, you know, we, looking back now, we knew that it was kind of a temporary shutdown, but at the time, you really had no idea what the future held, you know? So that was scary, but luckily was able to weather that 
And then um, another good friend of ours, Mike Flanagan, and I talked about working together just because, as we all do, we were talking about our cases every day. And, you know, it just made sense uh, to partner up. Felt like we could do a better job for our clients. Yeah. And when you first started, I mean, you were you were kind of on your own just doing everything, you know? Yeah. I mean, whenever I left um, <clears throat> the prior firm I was working with, yeah, I went and found a, uh, a shared space in Fort Lauderdale. And I was the only one there. I had, there was this whole floor of shared space offices, but as soon as COVID hit, nobody was going in. So I was the only person on the floor. I would go into this, you know, huge office every day. No clients were coming in. I was sitting there licking stamps, licking envelopes, <laughs> sending out all the letters. I, yeah, I was doing everything. And, um, you know, but that's what you kind of have to be willing to do when you want to take a risk and yeah. you can't immediately put out a ton of money for overhead and all that. Uh, you have to be willing to do that stuff. And, and I'm the type of person like I didn't have, and I still don't, I don't have the ego of if something needs to get done, like I'm too good to do it. You know, even now, like if I got to get on court map or the e-filing system and I got to file something, you know, you got to be willing to do that when right. you have your own firm. Right. And I think that's important starting out. I mean, Jordan, you, you had a shared space when you started your firm, which allowed you to keep costs low. And I had, I mean, I had an office that I was renting. I guess you could call it a shared space. It was like an office in a, someone else, a law firm that allowed me to keep those expenses low. So, I mean, we all have that space is something it's a luxury that hopefully you grow into, but I, I wouldn't say it's a prerequisite to any degree of success. I think Zach has now seen that we've seen that individually and then collectively, you know, um, and I think even maybe five years ago or so, it, it felt more important to have that brick and mortar. Um, it felt like, you know, you could feel more established, have clients come to the door, sit down in your office, et cetera. But flash forward to present, especially post pandemic. I mean, Zach, I don't know about you. I mean, do you even have clients really desiring to meet at your office unless it's to pick up a check? It's funny you say that because obviously the practice of law has changed a lot, right? Since the pandemic and the way that we interact with our clients has changed a lot. Um, I mean, there's obviously some good and bad, but yeah, there's clients that I'm meeting for the first time when I'm handing them their settlement check. I may have seen them over Zoom or something like that, but uh yeah, uh, I, I think you're 100% right that the necessity for the big, nice, expensive space, it's just not there anymore. Yeah, I think, well, it's, it's, it's weird because I'm kind of torn because I worked, so, so, so Zach rents an office out of our office here um, in Hollywood because we both live like right up the street, but during the pandemic, I was basically here by myself, right? Everyone was remote. I got this big, basically a waste of space, right? And then Jordan moved to Atlanta, who we had our Atlanta office that literally we have not been using for how long now? I don't think we've had anybody working there for over a year. Over, it's been over a year for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and I think our lease is up in October. We're just gonna let it go. We're gonna have no Atlanta office because we don't need it. So, but but down here now, we've started to have more people come to the office. You know, we've got. got it's kind of a different space now. We've got here that we've got the podcast studio here in our office. So it's a little bit different. I kind of like, I like to. Well, it's not all client focused, you know. Right. I mean, when we look through the prism of our team members, there's a lot of people on our team who like to come in. They have their space, they have their systems, they know where the equipment is, they know where our, their colleagues are. There's a collegiality and a good, warm environment. That, that's something that you can't really get work from home. I mean, you know, we've tried it, we were forced to do it, then we were pretty lax about it, and we still are, but I think there's still a, a lot to be said about being in the trenches, so to speak, working together. And I think you and Zach, you know, can even talk about that because about collaborating on cases when you're just an office or two away, as opposed to a phone call, you know? Yeah. So, the, you know, Zach was, is someone that, <clears throat> I mean, look, we all know that you two individuals, you worked at government positions. You had a lot more trial experience than I had. I had relatively zero um, Jordan, you know, allowed me to come into a DUI trial to try a case. And then I tried my first civil trial. So one of my, I think it was like our second or third trials that I had in a civil realm. I tried a case with Zach. Um, and it was the, it, it was a case involving an individual that was hurt at a softball tournament. There was a big fight. People were getting hit with bats. Like, you know, and it was, it was a, an experience that was great. I worked the case up, but ultimately we got to go to trial with Zach and, 
I was able to learn, you know, from him because that's the thing. We, even though we were separate, kind of like what you're mentioned, we always contacted each other for, you know, tips and advice, right? Like if you had a question, you'd ask me or I'd ask you or I'd ask Jordan. And, and it's like, you know, even Mike, I mean, mm-hmm. we, you know, so we have all of us and we were all basically at one point in time solos, you know? Yeah. And then we made the decision said, look, why don't we just try to work on a more collaborative effort? And so having you here, you know, being in an office setting, even though you were not together, like you, you're a tremendous resource for me, um, you know, with questions that I may have. Yeah. I think it's good. Um, even though the, the clients may not be coming in as much as they used to come in, I think it's good to be kind of with your team together. And even if you're not there together every day, at least a few days a week, just because, I mean, this is not an easy job that we have, you know, like it requires everyone pulling in the same direction. And so you can't, it's tough to create like the camaraderie and the team feel and the culture. If you're not there together, kind of in the trenches fighting together. So, yeah, I think that, you know, um, it is good for, for people to be in the office together because it just allows you guys to bounce ideas off of each other. Um, you know, look at things together and, and, do a lot of things that you can't do remotely. Yeah, I see. I know that <clears throat> I've had the, I've been working with Jordan now. The only time we're pretty much together is when it's trial, you know, other than that, right. you're, in, you're in Atlanta, I'm down here, you know, so it's, but we talk, I mean. Every- How does it work for you guys? I mean, I give you guys props because it's gotta be difficult to be in different locations and, and, make it work how do you guys make it work i think it's really because i mean i talk to jordan all like all the time you know and then when we're taking like important depositions or when we're like working like so when we're working on a project you know we we use we use filevine for our system we did we've obviously had various ones but we use slack and slack is like our communication thing where we have like direct messaging you can do video calls and so you know when we are if there's an assignment we're working on right we may be doing a video call. We'll create a Google doc and then we'll work out of the same thing together. Like if we're collaborating on, on an assignment, you know, when we've had some of these difficult pleadings. Um, and then the benefit though, kind of remotely, and this is what I think is, is, is a benefit to us. We can be in a deposition and it can be via zoom. Jordan can be present, but he's writing me messages. So like while I'm taking the depot, he's giving me questions to ask things to follow up things that I may miss that in a deposition setting, you know, he's trying to pass me in person notes or like, let's stop and take a break. I'm getting it live time, which to me is a tremendous, tremendous value for where we are now. Because when you're taking a live depot, you might miss something or, mm-hmm. or you're not listening. I mean, obviously we're listening to the question, but we may not be listening specifically enough. And I'll go back and he have caught it, but he also gives words of encouragement. Right. He like he might type like, boom, you know, he gets all <laughs> excited. Like I get a good response or a good answer yeah. to move on. And it's so it's it's I think it's great. I think the foundation has to be there, though, Zach. You know, it's like if John and I started where we weren't very collaborative to begin with, even though we were in office away from each other, we just grinded out separately. Then I think the distance probably would have exacerbated that and maybe made things worse. But because we were constantly in each other's office, constantly talking anyway, now that we can just leverage the technology that's available with Zoom and Slack, like John's talking about, it's actually a lot easier to keep the same level of consistency and commitment to the practice and, and our our goals as partners and our goals as individuals. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you ask my wife, she'll be like, do you ever hang up the fucking phone with John? Or is that just like, <laughs> is it just always on? Does Verizon know? Just always auto dial John. So, yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta be in constant contact because as you know, Zach, we're not just handling cases. I mean, that's the number one thing we're doing, but we're running a business. Yeah. And in that business, there's multiple people with multiple lives and needs. And, um, you know, you want to talk about distance, Latricia, who's a world beater of a paralegal. She's my actual right hand. She had to move to Texas, you know, for law school. Not had to. I mean, it's it's an opportunity we support. But, you know, her and I have now worked it out where she used to be in my office in Atlanta all the time. And now she's been in Texas going on a year and there's been no drop off in productivity. So I think you just have to be committed to keeping it 
where it was before and you can find an opportunity to do that even remotely these days. I think what you said is important is that you guys had the foundation, right? Like if you just bring in a new employee and you've never even met him face to face and you've never really connected and saw how each other worked and you didn't have that, you know, face to face time, it's tough, I think, to build that relationship through a computer screen. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree with you. I mean, we, we didn't even partner up immediately. We, we created like a joint venture where we had, we just started like kind of putting our toes in the water because like, look, as entrepreneurs, like we like don't want a boss. We want to work for ourselves. Like mm-hmm. that's our goal. And so I was working for myself as you were working with yourself. Mike was working for himself and so was Jordan. And so, you know, we kind of dabbled with the idea. We've got some cases together. We worked. I, I saw a lot in Jordan and myself, like his work ethic, um, I mean, his legal writing is much better than mine. I mean, he's, it's incredible the, what the work product that he can put out. So we, but we still, even that started separate, but inched our way to be like, all right, now we've got X number of cases we're handling collaboratively. Let's just partner up. Yeah. If you're going to have people working remotely, there's got to be some trust there. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to build that trust remotely. I think a lot of that's built in person. Um, but you know, yeah, I think to, to this to that point, the only employee that we currently have, he lives in Tallahassee. It's our appellate director, Terry, and you know he's someone from day one. I mean, we said there's no expectation that you must come down here and, and all that. And uh, but everybody else that we've hired and been part of our team has come in into the fold in person, and it's important to do that not just for the trust, like you said, but. I mean, look, you and Mike are running a firm. Mike's in the gable sometimes. You're in Broward. You have employees. I mean, how are you guys just like a training, getting people caught up to speed on your preferences, processes, and things like that? How are you guys doing that? So we're we're mandating um, all new hires in office. Uh, and, you know, that cuts out a lot of potential candidates because there's people with all the opportunities now that – that say I want to work from home and I'm not going to, yeah, I'm actually going to work for Tesla next week, guys. I'll <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, no, so we're mandating in office and, uh, I'm trying to go down there as much as I can. And Mike's down there every day. So we, we just are, we're firm believers that like to really train people the way we want them trained <clears> and <throat> to do things the way we want them done, that we kind of have to have that, uh, in-person interaction. And, and, you know, we may not be completely right about that, but that's just, that's our thoughts on it. Um, and what we found is that when we did go remote for a short period, there was like the, the Omicron spike and everybody got COVID. We actually found that productivity did kind of, we, we took a little hit on the productivity. So we are, we're big believers in our team is in office. And, yeah. and also another thing is it's just more fun. Like, when you practice these days, you do your depo Zoom, you do your hearing Zoom, you do your mediation Zoom. Like, how does it feel to get done with a mediation? You got a nice big settlement, and then you just like click off your computer and go home. Like, that's not nearly as fun as like being in the office with your friends and your colleagues, and you get to like celebrate together. I think that's like a, an added element of it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, I, I have fun. I mean, our. I feel like the culture at our, our job, even with you here, is like, look, like we're friends, colleagues, and, and, and indirectly we're competitors. But I don't look at you as a competitor. I look at like I want you to be successful as you want us to be successful, and I think that we can help each other, right? Like I have questions that, you know, if Jordan is unavailable, I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? And you're right there next to me, and I can ask you those questions. And that's what I think for new hires or for new employees, if they feel – like they may not want to, re- if you're there and they're together, they can come to you and ask you a question and say, I've got this issue. Can I pick your brain for a second? Right. Cause I'm here, you know, and they may not feel if it's remote or they can't get in touch with you or something's happening, you know, they may not be able to, to have that same comfortability. And I, and you, I always want people to say, look, if I don't know the answer to the question, cause there's a lot of things I don't know. And there's a lot of things over my career. I didn't know. I mean, when I transitioned from federal court to state, as I'm sure you guys, when you went from state criminal side to civil yeah there's a learning curve there and so i think being here and being available you know really really helps helps your productivity and and the the team and the culture grow and and it's been great so kind of coming back let me ask you a a question because i 
I know the answer for this for John, and John knows my answer for it if he were to ask me, but I mean, what we do a lot is deal with insurance companies mm -hmm. and their handlers, right? So whether that's an adjuster or in-house counsel or outside counsel who they're talking through, um, what are we talking about mostly? Money, right? Liability and damages, but at the end of the day, an amount of money. And I know how I negotiate, which is to say I don't really, I'm terrible. I'm not very likable and I don't like to budge. So my number is my number. John's a lot more likable and he can make things work. But I feel like, you know, maybe tell the listeners out there, what's your approach to insurance companies, especially on the tougher cases, trying to make sure you get that number for your client that uh, you're looking to get without setting the world on fire and having scorched earth, you know? Yeah, it's tough, man. Um, <clears throat> so are we talking like, pre-suit or litigation or both or what i mean you could talk both I, I was really thinking through it through the lens of litigation because i think that's when john and i are mostly getting our hands in it so to speak and by that time sometimes there's just too much contention and i'm just like you know see a trial i don't care what is that 18 months from now i'll set a timer wake me up when we're there you know uh, i don't want to yeah. hear about the lowball numbers i don't want to piss my client off by having to relay them i mean i always do when i have to ethically but uh, I, I have found through the years, I've just kind of, my degree of patience is slowly getting whittled down. I don't have the same willingness to entertain these shenanigans with these insurers as I used to. Yeah. I mean, so in litigation, I don't have a lot of direct contact with the adjusters anymore. Then it's primarily through the attorneys for the most part. Like if, if I'm talking to an insurance adjuster in litigation, it's generally through a demand letter or something like that. Um, but it's, you know, it's a great question and I don't know that there's an answer that fits every situation. Right. I think it depends on a lot of things. It depends on, cause sometimes you have a great case and you know that it's not a fair offer and you know that you can push the case a little further and you know, you're going to get the offer up, but your client may be, completely resistant to going to trial, you know? So it really just depends. Um, but I'm with you that I, I have little patience for the typical back and forth, especially like in small increments. I really, you know, I, I don't quite understand it. I guess there's a psychology to it that people smarter than me have like decided works. And, uh, in some cases it does work, but, um, yeah, I'm with you. I, I kind of tend to, cut to the chase more um, because right. we've got so much to do. You know, we can't spend, I, I can't spend hours going back and forth on numbers. I can tell you generally where we're at and, and it is what it is. And if you don't want to pay, then, you know, the jury will decide what the value of the case is. Right. And, and I, I, to, I always see those cases where I don't understand, like on a case that I think has relatively lower value, I'm getting an incredible offer. And then on a case that has great value, I'm getting a low offer. And I just, like, sometimes, like, there's no consistency sometimes between carrier, between adjusters, everything is different, you know? So I, I think you're kind of right. There is no, like, one size fits all for your case. But you say, this is the number. This is the bottom number we'll take. We'll do our proposal for settlement, and then we'll go to trial. And then, I mean... Zach, do you notice, I mean, do you notice a difference? Because you have the benefit. You were working for a prestigious firm, playing this firm down in South Florida, for a while and then you started on your own before partnering up with Mike. I mean, have you seen have insurers treated you differently, whether literally with numbers or their attitude based on when you were where you were as an associate versus a solo versus now, or has it been basically the same? Um, <clears throat> so do I, do I believe that having a reputation and a history of doing very good work uh, adds benefits to the settlement offers you get without a doubt. I can tell you that. And, you know, I handled hundreds of cases at my prior firm. Um, yes, you, you get offers there. Um, and, and you, you know, I may arrive at the same offer that I would get there on the same case, but it may take a lot longer. I think there, um, when they know that you have a track record of trying cases and they know that you have a track record of going the distance and that just takes time, you know, we've all, I think I, at least for me, this will be my 11th year practicing. Maybe that's just not enough time to build that record. But when you have that record for 10, 15, 20 years, 
Um, and the insurers absolutely know that you will go to trial. Without a doubt, I think that you get better offers and I think you get them maybe a little quicker too. I think you've got to try the tough cases, right? I mean, that's, it may seem intuitive, but I, I think too many people give it lip service without willing to do it. I mean, there's a lot of lawyers out there who have the ability to try, I'll say challenging cases, you know, challenging liability or causation cases. Um, and they end up settling them, you know, mm-hmm. thinking maybe it's not worth the time. I don't want to get zipped. Let's just take the money that's there. But John and I many years ago just committed to if the client's on board, there are going to be some cases that we know we're probably going to swing and miss. We're just going to take them to the mat anyway. I think uh, there's no better case than the tough case. And, and the reason why is because you've got nothing to lose. You know, when you're getting a $15,000 offer on a case that's worth half a million bucks, you know, but you got tough liability or you got tough causation. I mean, if your client's willing, to me, that takes the pressure off. Um, you guys just tried a case and you got a great result. It was a pretty good case, though, you know. Those, I feel like, are more pressure-filled than the cases where you almost expect to lose. So I, I personally like to try the tough cases because I feel like, hey, you know, if I if if the result is a bad result, that's basically what we were going to get anyway by settling the case. But if it's a good result, um, you know, you did something. That's the magic of being a trial lawyer, right? Yeah. Like you, you go to these conferences and you hear people talk about the $10 million quadriplegic case. And I heard Steve Yared say this one time, and, and he's, uh, he's a guy that I really look up to. And he said, the magic of being a trial lawyer isn't getting $10 million on a $10 million case. He said, the magic of being a trial lawyer is getting 100000 on the $10,000 case. And, you know, we don't think about that, but like that's, that's what it's really all about is using your skills to really benefit your client when, when there may be some tough issues in the case that other people would would look at and maybe shy away from trying it. Yeah, I, I think that that's 100% true. And and I've had, you know, we've tried those cases together. We, we've we tried cases. I've only tried bad cases. Like the good <laughs> I was going to say, you The good cases settle. Recipe. Yeah, the good cases settle. Like the cases I've tried have been tried out of, I don't want to say desperation, but it was the only option. What else can you do? It was either like basically voluntarily dismiss the case or try it. So, so, so I think you're right because those cases, like the one we went to trial, and you know we got two point five million dollar verdict, but we turned down and rejected a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar offer. So what happens in that scenario that we say, look, I think we can get more. You've got a really good case, and we go to trial and get less. You know, so that that's a risk. But but it, and it was a client who originally didn't want to go to trial, wanted to settle. But because the insurance company didn't like took their time and didn't do it, like obviously the case got better for us. It was like it's a trial case. But the other ones we've tried where they're offering like we had a case, Jordan and I was a parking lot accident, you know, with a woman who had like a herniated disc, no injections, no surgery in a parking lot, went back to work, you know, and had like twenty three thousand dollars of medical bills. And they offered us three thousand bucks. Yeah. You know, PFS. And we did a proposal for settlement for $20,000 and said, let's rip. We went to trial and we got a $192,000 verdict. Client pocketed over $100,000 in her pocket. And that, that I mean, That's she, awesome. was, she was willing to take six That's in her awesome. pocket. Yeah. You know, and those are the kind of cases that you talk about. And I don't want to call them bad cases. They're tough cases, tough. right? Um, you know, I don't, I don't like to call a case bad. But, yeah, there's, they're just tough. And um, trying the tough cases, too gives you confidence when you have a good case, you know, like I don't want my first trial to be the paraplegic product liability case where I'm expected to get $12 million. I want my first trial or my first 10 trials to be tough cases where I can learn. And if I make a mistake, I'm not hurting the future of, you know, this, this person that has this catastrophic injury. Yeah. And, and that, that, you know, I, we have taken, I, and I've had losses on those tough cases. And I think you have to, to grow and learn from things you have to lose. You know, and a lot of people, the trial lawyers, they, always, they never want to talk about their losses, right? They always want to talk about the wins they have. And, you know, we, me and Jordan tried a case, and I, I will never forget. It was like, I hate this case. 
to to like I don't want to say I hate the case. It was a it was a case that as it developed, I began to to not enjoy trying the case. But I still had conviction. I still had not responsibility. We rejected about it. It was like a hundred and seventy five k offer. Went to trial, got zipped, and the pro, and literally when in opening statement, in opening statement, I don't even mention the client's name. I didn't even. I, I was so just. Like, and then I, and then there was a part where in between an, an MRI and the, the MRI post-accident, my client was in the hospital complaining of being in, in, in incredible back pain, showed up in a wheelchair. I don't even talk about an opening statement. First time they heard about this from the defense. I mean, and the, the so, so what do you attribute that to? It, it, it was a lot. There were a lot of balls being juggled. Yeah. It's so I don't want to say it was. I think it was, it's not preparation. I don't know. I, maybe it was. Oh, it definitely wasn't preparation. That was me, you, and Keela. It was in a new jurisdiction for us. We're not in Palm Beach County trying cases regularly, even if we handle cases up there. Um, there were a lot of moving parts, a lot of pretrial rulings, a lot of pending expert issues, um, and a lot of challenges inherent in the case with the client's priors and deposition testimony and the like. So yeah, uh, you would, you were lead on that case. There was a lot going on. I think all that case taught me, well, not all, but one of the things it taught me was we're all human and we're all fallible and we're all imperfect. And that includes trial lawyers. And you, know, you can only prep so much, but when live bullets are flying, you know, sometimes mistakes happen. I think Zach, that goes right back to what you said. You don't want to be making mistakes in the $10 million quad case. You right. want to, if you're going to have to ever make mistakes, you want them where the stakes are a little bit lower. Yeah. Right. And, and now from that, I don't, if there's a bad fact, it's always coming out for me at anything. We make sure we go through every single bad fact. It's never going to happen again. And it has never happened again. Yeah. And we're obviously seeing much better success. So it's like, you know, every loss is a win in the sense that you can learn something from it. I know Zach, you were, I mean, you were a prosecutor for three years. And yeah. so I'm sure it's inevitable that throughout your career as a prosecutor, you look down at some cases, you're like, I don't want to have to try this in front of a jury. Um, you know, at some point you offer a deal that you just expect to be taken by the defendant and they don't. And then you find yourself having to try and defend, <clears throat> I shouldn't say defend, but prosecute uh, on a theory of, of criminal don't even believe in, whether it's a pot possession or some nonsense, you know, whatever it is, some C-level felony. Um, but I'm sure that probably gave you confidence and experience now doing the plaintiff PI side to say, look, if the insurer forces my hand, I'll try this case. I've, I've tried harder and more challenging. This is no, no problem. You know? Yeah. When I first transitioned from a criminal to civil, I definitely felt that the stakes were higher. Cause I, I left the state attorney's office, uh, as a B prosecutor. Um, and so I never tried any like homicides or anything like that. And so, you know, you were trying the like low level drug cases, stuff like that. Um, but I felt like when I came to civil, you know, if I lose this person who's injured for the rest of their life is going to leave this courtroom with nothing and they got to deal with that by themselves. And to me, that seemed like the stakes were higher, but I will tell you this. Um, I've been lucky enough that, in my career, I've had one outright defense verdict. Um, and that is the only client to this day that texts me every single year on my birthday and says, happy birthday. And you're worried about how the clients are going to react if you lose their case. But she saw that it was a tough case and we gave it everything we had and was never upset with us you know, knew we fought as hard as we could fight. And that's just an example that, you know, you don't have to be afraid, like losses are going to happen. Yeah. And as long as you do what's right by your client, as long as you gave it everything you had, your clients recognize that, yeah. man. And, and so that, for me, that experience of losing, it was good to just get the loss out of the way. But another thing is it let me know that my clients, you know, aren't going to come like, they're not out for blood if you lose their case as long as they see that you did everything you could to help them win. Yeah, and I and I think that's like human nature is <clears throat> you want someone to fight for you, you know, and we get to like <clears throat> one of the, the best things that we have as as lawyers and especially in personal injury realm, like we get to be someone's voice in a courtroom setting fighting for them. Like, you know, if you sit back and look at that, they are entrusting us with so much, right? 
And when you go and do what you guys did and give it your all and just try, even if you're not successful, like the fact that you were willing to fight for them, because we're in it together, <clears throat> you know, like we're, we're all in it together. We fight for them. And I think it's almost like, like people want to be heard, mm-hmm. right? And you heard them, you fought for them, you had conviction. And if it didn't turn out the way you did, then, you know, it didn't, it's almost like you said before, when they're not offering you anything, it's not like they were going to get anything without you anyway. So it's like you tried, you took a shot, you were unsuccessful, you know, you know, and, and we have, you know, we had, um, you tried a second version of a case where we went to trial, got a defense verdict, went up on appeal, got a new trial. We came back and tried it. We're successful and in a, well, not as successful as we want because we're going to try to try it again. You know, we think we should have to try it a third time because, you know, and that's the thing is that and if we're unsuccessful with that, there are worse things. But we took a case that we lost, got a new trial and came back and fought again. And, and the client is as eternally grateful as you can imagine for the work. And you were able to step in and help us with that. So, yeah, you know, it's 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 great. Zach, let me ask you something else, too, because I know John before him and I linked up, he had uh, a lot of maritime experience, you know, cruise ship type stuff. And mm-hmm. for the benefit of the listeners out there, just in a very overgeneralized sense. A lot of the cruise ship, uh, you know, injured or died on a cruise or offshore excursion while on a cruise, a lot of that stuff ends up in the Southern District of Florida in Miami. Mm-hmm. And our firm has from time to time handled some of those cases because John does have that experience. And, you know, it's not too dissimilar from land-based torts, but it's dissimilar enough where it's not apples to apples. And I know you and Mike, you know, you do a, a fair amount of that. So maybe you can kind of educate the people out there about some of the key differences and what it's like to be litigating those types of torts in federal court. Yeah, I would say Mike is, he's the expert on maritime, but um, I can give kind of the, the general differences that I, that I see between litigating in federal court and litigating in state court. Um, And, and, you know, you'll meet some people that prefer to litigate in federal court and some people that prefer to litigate in state court. And I think there are pros and cons to each one. Um, obviously, things are going to move quicker in federal court. Deadlines are much firmer in federal court. Um, I think there's a lot less discovery games in federal court simply because a lot of the judges um, just have no tolerance for, you know, these boilerplate objections that we end up seeing in state court all the time. And so that's a that's a positive. On the other hand, um, you know, we have to we have to have more than one case in order to like have a successful business, you know. But if you've got a handful of federal cases and that could be five to ten, that can keep you busy mm-hmm. simply because you know, your trial may be set in nine months, discovery's done in four months, something like that. So, you know, that sometimes makes it a little overly stressful to be in federal court, but there are definitely some some benefits to being there. Yeah, except except if you want to talk to a jury, that's uh, we don't get to do that in federal court. Yeah, depending on the judge, you don't get you don't get or, or if they do, they say, well, we got a panel of you know twenty five people, however maybe forty five, you get fifteen minutes, you know, and then so that's. That's kind of some of the dissimilarities that are not good from the trial standpoint of, of being in federal court that, I mean, I've been a part of, you've been, you know, in part of as well. So, you know, listen, I know, um, I know it's Friday, George's got to run soon, but I want to talk about one of the cases that we handled together. Um, and it, it's a case involving, it's kind of an interesting liability case. It was a good damages case, but one that we, we tried together, um, it was the <clears throat> it was a case involving a client. Now this was Zach's case. You want me to you want me to introduce the case? All right, I'm, I'm going to let Zach introduce the case. This was his case. So all right, so here was the case. I remember walking in to the the partner's office and meeting the client. Very nice guy, the client and um, and the partner. <laughs> um, and he handed the file and I kind of got the rundown of what the case was about. And he's like, "All right, you think you got this?" And I was like. You know, I don't know, because I had just heard the facts. And essentially, these are the facts. There's a guy uh, in, like, the southern part of Miami-Dade County, and he goes to a flea market. And the flea market was open, and he says that uh, there were these people crawling through a hole in the fence that circled the perimeter of the flea market. It was like a, like a chicken wire fence, basically. And he says he saw some people crawling through the hole in the fence to get into the flea market, 
So he crawled through the hole in the fence to get into the flea market. And I guess his jeans got caught on a piece of the chicken wire. He fell and he had, um, I think he fractured his, uh, it was called like a Pilon trimalleolar fracture. I think that's what it was. And so you hear those facts and you think, this is a tough case. You know, guys crawling through a hole in a fence, falls, fractures his ankle. But then I started talking to him a little more, found out that he was there to buy clothes for his wife who was dying of cancer. Um, Just like had a heart of gold, very nice guy, like salt of the earth guy. Like that's the guy I want to help. Right. You know what I mean? And, and, and that's kind of the way I looked at the case, but I certainly had reservations. Like we started doing discovery in the case. And I remember I took a deposition of a, a guy that was there that was a witness. He was a Jehovah's Witness. So, and he was ex-military. So you hear those two things, you're like, okay, this guy's probably going to be pretty credible. Right. And he claims that, you know, my guy didn't climb through a hole in a fence, that there weren't other people climbing through the hole in the fence, that my guy pushed the fence down and tried to basically step over it. Um, and so I heard that, and I remember going back to the office and just like, I was like, what do I do? Yeah. Like, I got this witness now that basically has no credibility issues he's come in he's just torpedoed the case like that's a tough case and and so we went to mediation and obviously what happened is confidential but you know I didn't have faith in the case at that point I begged basically for an offer to put some money in my client's pocket and they basically told me no and so that's a perfect example you know we had to go try the case and obviously based on those facts um Whenever I was talking to other people in the firm about it, no one was very gung-ho to go try that case. And so I called you, and uh, you jumped in. And I remember we were prepping for John the case. John must have been gung-ho. Come on. John was gung-ho. <laughs> well, well, well John wasn't in the office. I'm talking about the other colleagues. You know, when you're shopping that case around, people are like, eh, that's all you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, I talked to John, and John was ready to go. And so I remember, you know, we started prepping um, like two weeks in advance, mm-hmm. we, st- we took the doctor's depot by video. Um, did I leave anything out as far as the facts? No, I, no. I, well, there was, <clears throat> there was also an, an off duty, uh, hired, um, a police, uh, officer. police officer who was present at the time, who was also one of their fact witnesses. So they, we had good fact. And I remember I talked to Zach about after that depot and he was like, what am I supposed to do with that? And, and, you know, when we tried the case, we were like, what are we supposed to do with this? Yeah. So we started prep and it was something that, you know, we, we practiced opening, we worked, you know, here's what we did. So, you know, we've all, you included Jordan, we've all read all the books. We've gone to all the conferences. We've listened to the seminars, but we started to like put that stuff to work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We started to theme the case. We started to develop ideas about how we're going to cross each individual witness. Um, and, and that like that, is the magic in my opinion of being a trial attorney is to to have that case it's a tough case and you take all these things you've learned from the people that are you know more experienced than us and you put it together and you put it into practice yeah and i Who think did the cross-examination of the jehovah's witness witness so so it's interesting <clears throat> so zach did the cross-examination <clears throat> but what he undersells a little bit is that he had gotten the corporate representative for the defendant to say like look at the time this thing was open they opened at seven o'clock Right. Our guy gets there about 745. There's no directions as to where the entrance was open. So even though they're open, there was only some random back door entrance that no one knew. Like, that's where you go between seven or eight. And then on in the video depot, the defense lawyer was like, are you sure it opened at seven o'clock or it wasn't or was it eight? And the guy was like, oh, yeah, now that you mentioned it's eight o'clock. Right. Even though all the other. So now you've got this problem when he's asking questions, when Zach is, it's seven. But then when the defense lawyers, it's eight. Now, why is that important? It's because we turned it into like all the witnesses had credibility issues, right? Yeah. And that's real quick. That's another important lesson. You have to video your depots. Like if that, that would not have had the effect that it had if that was on paper. Right. If that was a transcript that we were reading, the jury would have been like, yeah, so what? He got the time wrong. But it looked so suspect when... I asked him and he quickly answered the time and then the defense lawyer asked him and he like 
it was so contrived. He like sat back and pondered the question. And he was like, oh yeah, I think I was wrong. I think it was eight. And you know, without like video depots, that wouldn't have right. You're reading a cold transcript. Yeah. You don't get to see it happen. And, and you know, Zach's been the benefit of, I mean, he's had clients on video depot. They grab the microphone and go, yes, I lied. You want to hear it? Yes, I lied on video. And Zach was like, thank you. You know? So yeah. in, if you, you're able to see that, so, you know, if you've got an important depot of, your, of the defendant, do it by video, spend the extra two, 300 bucks and get it done. So Zach's preparing to cross-examine this guy. And this is why, like, trial preparation and working in a team and a collaborative effort, like when Jordan, when we just roundtabled that trial, we had everybody in going, because everyone's got a different perspective. Mm -hmm. He said, and he testified, that when he went to go get our client, that he had to break the staples from the chicken wire out of a post, Right to get the, the, the wire to fall. Well, when we looked at the post, the staples are still in the post. So that can't be true. So we saved it. So Zach gets up on cross. Now, I was IT during this trial. so And it may seem <clears throat> like, if you're listening to this, it may seem like that's not a big deal, right? Like the guy didn't remember if he pulled staples out of a post, but it was like all we had. Right. So we had to make a big deal out of it. So Zach gets up there. He asks the questions. So, all right. So you're telling me that this is what happened in terms of, you know, you broke the staples out. All right. Well, if that's true, he's like, John, can you pull up exhibit 14? We blew up and zoomed in. Then how are the staples still in the post? Open-ended, not really a leading question. He bugged out and was like, oh, well, maybe I didn't break the staples. I tore the metal long ways. We were like, what? We're talking about tearing metal long ways. So then, so then we were like, oh, and we, so we had him on that, and then we basically said that you get to be here for free. Yeah, we got to show that he didn't have to pay for space to advertise at the flea market, that right. he got to be there free, and he wasn't going to jeopardize that by giving testimony that was uh, adverse to the flea so market. We, so we did, so we did and, and in closing arguments, we did an alliteration with the, the eyes. We did interested, inconsistent, and in conflict with the evidence. Yep. And we were able to show how every single witness... Then and that kind of became our theme, right? Is that, that they, the defense had credibility issues. And sometimes, you know, you hear, like, if the glove doesn't fit, or what is it? If the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. You think every theme has to be catchy like that. Sometimes your theme can be more general and just it can be a theme of the credibility of every witness is terrible. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what we ran with. And, and dude, that that is the only case to this day where the jury has given me every penny I asked for. Right, and and though, in fairness and, and a tip for it, we accepted some negligence. We, we said did. we said give our client ten percent. Right, yeah. he shouldn't have done that. He should, you know, give him ten percent. Jury ultimately gave him twenty five, but they gave us every category of damage on a case that literally everyone was like, "You're going to lose," and that was. I'm not suggesting by any stretch of the defense wasn't prepared or you guys had to walk in the park. Cause I, I got to watch some of that trial and I know you guys were up against it, but I feel like often in a situation like that, where the defense is probably showing up expecting to just steamroll, it does beg the question in my mind, have they really prepared for every conceivable tidbit of bias I'm going to elicit or every, you know, nuance that I can kind of exploit for my client's benefit, but within, within the evidence, you know, and in good faith. And I feel like oftentimes, you can catch the other side of sleep or not prepared for how vigorously you're going to cross one witness or another. And just, just like that, before you know it, you're a day and a half into a case and, and a dog of a case, so to speak, and trial went to a pretty fair fight. Well, and to yeah. your point, Zach, the jury gave you guys every penny asked for. Well, it's like know? what we do. We're, incredible. We're, we're up all night. I mean, we were up till two, three in the morning, preparing closing arguments, doing new slides, I mean, you know, and you're up all night. I, I like to go to sleep on the couch around 11, 1130. You know? Well, Jordan falls asleep. Well, then again, the other trials, I've been the one to fall asleep. But but the point is, we were we were preparing late. And that's that thing. Like, when you're in the thick of trial, you got to be adaptable. you got to be able to, to change in response to things may not come out the way you want. And then kind of use those to your advantage. And then pose interesting questions. We posed three questions to the to the defense that were like, these are questions that someone should answer, and they just called them more distractions and ignored the questions, and I thought that really kind of backfired. So that's to your point, Jordan, you know, catching them kind of sleeping. Yeah, so. they obviously expected to win that case. Yeah. Um, I mean, clearly it was a very, very tough case. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, that's that goes back to my point, though, about trying tough cases. Like, 
if you're going to try the case, you got to give it everything you got. You know what I mean? Even if it's a tough case and you think you're going to lose and you're expected to lose, you still got to give it everything you got. And that's what we did. And they probably looked at those facts. They said, we got a guy crawling through a hole in a fence and he fell. Like, how are we going to lose this case? And we analyzed 80 pictures painstakingly, like looking at it like a microscope with like Sherlock Holmes or something. And we finally found something that worked. And you know, it turned out our way. Right. So in the thick of trial, which yeah. is great, which yeah. is incredible. Yeah, I don't know so. if it was Jerry Spence or uh, Edward Bennett Williams, one of those, you know, all time greats. But in one of their books, it says like very clearly in every case, there is a way to thread the needle to a victor. It really is, you know, through your presentation, whether it's the theme or one particular examination of a witness or how you present the documentary evidence. Uh, but if you approach every single trial that way, that no matter how challenging, there is a path to victory. You just have to find it. Um, it gives you that confidence to pursue those challenging cases, just like you guys did. And, you know, you guys are being modest and that's great, but it was a fucking incredible result. And I'm sure your client is still to this day, super grateful. Yeah. I mean, um, I, mean, I, I know I, we got uh, Well, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, for me personally, like I didn't even know this client and like after they read the verdict, like the team, like I broke down and was emotional with someone I had barely yeah, known. Yeah, we all had like tears in our eyes because was, you just you just didn't expect it. And then you knew that like this meant so much to this guy and he lost his wife while the case was yeah. pending. So like it yeah, I mean it was good. When you talk about like this is why we do what we do, that that was just a very good experience. All right, well look, I want to thank everyone for tuning in and again I want to thank uh, Zach for joining us on the show it was great um, to have a, another fellow young trial lawyer the next generation the up and coming uh, here in South Florida community so listen for all the benefit of our listeners tell them like where can they find you where can they see you and get more information yeah so uh, I appreciate you letting me plug my firm <laughs> <laughs> considering we do the same thing but um, yeah my firm is Flanagan and Bodenheimer uh, we practice all throughout the state of Florida we got an office here with you guys in Hollywood, and we have another office in the Gables. Um, uh, we're not huge on social media, but you can get us at our website, which is www.florida-justice.com. Okay, perfect. All right, well, like I said, thanks for coming on, Zach. And uh, I'm Thanks sure, for having me, guys. I'm sure fun. we'll have you here again. Yeah. All right, take care, everybody. All right, bye-bye. Thanks for checking out the John and Jordan on Justice podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, consider leaving us a review and be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with John and Jordan, check out at OnJusticePod on Instagram and Twitter or check out Discord for PlaintiffAttorneys.com to communicate with them and like-minded plaintiff attorneys in a private Discord server. Until next time, this is the John and Jordan on Justice Podcast. Oh